You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. Later this week, Liz and my kids and I will be hopping on a plane to go visit family in South Carolina. I enjoy our trips back to the South because I enjoy getting to see family and see those whom I love that I don't get to spend very much time with, but I also have learned to love the place. Upstate South Carolina is where I went to college, and it's where I began my, uh, my relationship with Liz. It's where we started our life together, and so it's where my, my young adulthood was, and it has a special place in my heart. Even though I've been in Colorado for about 14 years now, Um, there's still a part of me that feels like I'm going home when I go back to the Carolinas. In fact, there are aspects of South Carolina that I appreciate much more since I've moved out here. For one, it's so green, even in the summer. My mother-in-law has a beautiful garden in her backyard. They actually live in a spot where they've got a lot of space. Um, And so they have a a well-tended garden in their backyard with types of plants that would never survive out here in Colorado, but that bloom beautifully or just trees with different kinds of leaves. And, And so I enjoy just walking back there and admiring what grows. And then even when you step outside of those well-tended areas, there is just life everywhere. There are trees that tower up. You've got tall pine trees. You've got oaks that have been there for hundreds of years. You've got all sorts of of different varieties of trees and plants and shrubs and undergrowth. And that's not even counting the kudzu that tries to take over everything. And then my wife and I also, we always used to love, we lived in upstate South Carolina. So we're just across the border from North Carolina. And so if we just take an hour or so drive up into North Carolina, we can get into places that have unique climates where literally it's the only place on earth where certain types of plants grow. And you can hike and come upon waterfalls that make anything that Colorado calls a waterfall kind of pale in comparison with the volume of water that runs through them. And it is just beautiful and lovely, and there is a sense of, of being at home and settled in peace when I go and walk through those woods. And I enjoyed it when I lived there, when I went to college and in my early adulthood. But it really took moving away for me to appreciate it fully. There's the old proverb, and I trace this back, it's really old. There's the old proverb that says, familiarity breeds contempt. But I think just as often, it's not necessarily contempt that we feel with familiarity, it's just We don't notice the things around us when we've been living in a place for a really long time. And this can be true with people when we live with a person for a long time. We can stop noticing some of the things that are unique about them, the things that initially drew us and attracted us to them. It can be true of a place where you can actually, for a moment, take the mountains that sit on our horizon for granted because we see them every single day, and then you see them through new eyes when you have someone who comes in and hasn't seen them before, and they gasp, and they're amazed at the beauty of the place that we live in. And what is true of places where we have lived and people we have known can also be true of our life with God. We can become so used to saying, this is the way that things are, that we forget to marvel at what it is that we're saying. 
We don't recognize how strange things may sound to somebody who is new and hasn't been living in this life and in this community with us for a long time. Someone who has not grown up in the faith can actually help us to see things with new eyes. And this necessity of being reminded of what it is that is important to us, even though we have seen it and said it over and over again, is part of why we have special Sundays like Trinity Sunday. There is never a Sunday where we gather where we are not worshiping the Trinity. There is never a Sunday that we gather where we do not proclaim that we serve God who is revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that this is our God. We proclaim the historic creed every week where we are announcing that this is what we believe. And yet when we say it over and over again, if we don't stop and pause and wonder there can be times where we just don't realize what it is we're saying, how marvelous, how wonderful, and how strange is this mystery of the Trinity. And it is a mystery. I think it's important if we're going to take a look at the life of the Trinity to state up front that we can never fully understand what it means when we say that we serve one God in three persons. Because at some point, all analogies break down. Our human understanding doesn't get us all the way there because this is not something that we have created out of a human mind. This is something that is the nature of the eternal God who is so far and so above us that we pale in comparison to his life. Like that scene in Isaiah that was read where he stands in the throne room of God and he can just say, woe is me because this is glory and I am unclean. But when we say that something is a mystery, it doesn't mean that we don't know anything at all about it. This is a mistake that we can fall into when we proclaim the Trinity is a mystery. It could be like, oh, that means I don't need to try to understand it at all. God has revealed to us in his Holy Scripture much of his character as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if we look at what he has given us, we can know it better than we would. We can remind ourselves of what we believe and we can worship more fully and more faithfully. We're going to take a look at what he says today in John, beginning in chapter 16, where our reading was. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me there. This passage is part of the farewell discourse, that collection of teachings that Jesus shared with his disciples in the upper room the night before his death. He knew that he would soon be leaving them. And so he's speaking of things that up to this point, as they had followed and walked with him, he had left unsaid. In fact, that's exactly what he says at the beginning of our passage in John 16, chapter 5. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And because of that, he's sharing some things that he had left unsaid up to this point. And a significant part of what he spoke of, um, as John records in his gospel on this night in the upper room, it was the Holy Spirit. Because as he returns to the Father, he is sending the Spirit. In verse 7, he makes that claim that is oftentimes startling to us, I think no matter how many times we read it, where he tells the disciples, it is better for you that I am going. Because when I go, I will send to you a helper. 
As Jesus speaks of the Father to whom He is going and the Spirit whom He will send, He reveals to us a great deal about the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the relationship that they share and that we are invited into. First, one of the fundamental things that we declare when we talk about the Trinity is that there are three distinct persons in the Trinity. In the passage that we just read, Jesus refers to the Spirit as He. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And what is important here is not necessarily the gender of the pronoun, that it's the Spirit is He, but that it is a personal pronoun. It's not, the Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a He, it is a person. And it is clear throughout the Gospels that Jesus and the Father speak to one another as persons. And it is clear here in this passage that they speak to the Spirit as well. In verse 13, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority. But whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. And this means that when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it is fundamentally different from many of the ways that people outside of the church talk about the spiritual things where they want the Spirit to sort of be an abstract force that kind of happens and motivates. Uh, uh, We want to be spiritual but not religious. We don't want to have to actually worship a person or engage in a relationship. We just want to be aware of spiritual things around us. And there really is no category where that fits into Scripture. There is no such thing as talking about spiritual things without talking about particular spirits. But it's your spirit and my spirit and God's spirit that is sent to us as a person with whom we can have a relationship and speak and talk to, who listens to God the Father and God the Son, who speaks to us. And of course, if you've been in the church for a long time, you know this. But it's easy to begin acting like the spirit is just sort of a force that's going to motivate and maybe provide me with extra good luck. It's going to help me get through times by making me feel good. And it's going to to sort of conform the world to the way that I would like it to be and the way that things should be. And that is not the God we serve. The God we serve is three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, at the same time, as Jesus is speaking at this moment, we get this sense and this understanding that they share equally in the divine nature. Last week, when we read in John chapter 14, Jesus told Philip, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. When Philip made that statement that said, If you show us the Father, it will be enough for us. Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. There's a sense in which the relationship that they share is so intimate that to see one and to know one is to know the others as well. This week he makes that bold statement that it's better for you that I should go away. And this statement cannot be true if we have God leaving us and giving us something less than God. 
It is clear throughout Scripture that what the human heart needs, the contentment that we are seeking for, is God himself, and anything less will not satisfy. And so when Jesus says, when I go and I leave you, it says, it's better for you to have the Spirit, what he is indicating in this as well is that the Spirit also shares in the same divine nature that he shares in. He makes it really clear in other passages throughout John that if the Spirit is with you, then Jesus himself has not really left you. Because just as if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. If you have seen the Spirit, if you know the Spirit, you know Jesus and you know the Father. You are brought into that divine life. And again, when we think about what we say and state and what we actually believe and practice, I think that sometimes the reason that we even find the statement of Jesus so startling is that we don't really think of the Holy Spirit as a person who is with us in the same way that Jesus is a person who is with us. Because we can't see and touch his body, we, want, we don't consider him a person in the same way at times, but he is. He is here with us now. And because the Holy Spirit is here with us now, Jesus is here and with us now. God the Father is here and with us now. So if we're focusing on the Trinity as these three persons and remembering that they are three persons who all share in the same divine nature, why do we say that there is one God? First, we do so because that is how God has revealed himself to us. The Christian faith did not come out of a vacuum. It came out of a, a further understanding of the Jewish faith. And so we, we take the Old Testament as well to be scripture, and we think can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, where one of the fundamental things that God taught the Israelites is that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. We are to worship the God who is one. God has revealed to himself, revealed himself to us as one God, not as three gods, but as one God. But it also, as we look at what Jesus has to say, we have this evidence of perfect unity. We're not serving a pantheon like the Greek gods, where they have different wills, where one wants one thing and one wants another thing. I read the Iliad a couple years ago, and in that story, of, of that classic Greek story, part of what's going on is that the fights between the gods are being played out among human beings, where one wants one thing, another wants something else, and they're fighting and, and setting their wills against one another, using humans as pawns to sort of make that happen. And this is not the case with the God we serve because they are perfectly unified in purpose. And that purpose that is revealed to us is to glorify God. Verse 14 in the passage that we just read, verse 14 in chapter 16, it says, He will glorify me. This is what the Spirit is going to do when Jesus sends him to us. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit works to glorify the Son. But if we flip back in a couple other places in John, and we see the way that Jesus has talked throughout the book of John, in chapter 8, verse 54, Jesus says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. God the Father glorifies the Son. So God the Father glorifies the Son, and God the Spirit glorifies the Son. But then we can also 
take a look at chapter 12, verse 28, where Jesus says, And for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The Son is working to glorify the Father. We can look at chapter 13, verses 31 and 32. It says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. And there's a lot of the word glorify in a very short period of time. But essentially what it's saying is that the, the work that God is doing to glorify the Son, the Son is doing that so that the Father himself will be glorified. There's this unity of purpose that we keep on seeing. We keep on coming back to this idea that God is working for his own glory. In chapter 17, one more. Chapter 17, verses 4 and 5, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. God's glory has been eternal. Isaiah got a glimpse of that when he stepped into that throne room. And it is God's purpose to work continually for His glory. This is part of what it means for Him to live. And the Son glorifies the Father. And the Father glorifies the Son. And the Spirit glorifies the Son so that the Father might be glorified. And there is this perfect unity of purpose of Father, Son, and Spirit all working for the same thing together. And yet, at the same time, there is an order to it. Chapter 14, verse 10 Again, we're making that response to Philip. Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. The Son does not say anything apart from the Father. He submits to the Father's will. And in verse 13, as we've already seen, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit does not speak apart from the things that the Son asks him to speak. And so we have this perfect unity of purpose, this perfect unity of will, while also having order within the Trinity. And even though there's this, these different roles, there's these different persons fulfilling this, these purposes, they share everything. Verse 15 of what we just read, Jesus says, All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit is going to take what is, belongs to Jesus because Jesus can talk about what belongs to him in the same way that he would talk about the things that belong to the Father. Because everything that the Father has, the Son has. And then everything that the Son has, he's also going to give it to the Spirit. And so everything that the Son has, the Spirit has. There is this perfect sharing among them, this perfect sharing, and this, while we still have the diverse three persons. We have an order among the Trinity. And with all of this, It can be confusing to follow it all, but we can sum it up in a few different statements. We can say that God is one. God is one. He is perfectly unified in will. He's perfectly unified in purpose. The divine essence is shared equally. 
The glory of the Father is the glory of the Son. The glory of the Son is the glory of the Spirit. They share everything perfectly. There is a unity in God. While God is also three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of them actual persons. I can speak to Jesus when I pray. I can speak to God the Father when I pray. I can speak to the Holy Spirit when I pray. What I cannot do, I can't speak to some abstract God that exists apart from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is not some divine essence that is apart from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they just sort of share in and participate in as if it's some sort of sea that they're all swimming in. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God. There is no other God apart from them as these three persons that they have been revealed to us. Similarly, we can say that God is a diversity. There are differences in authority. There are differences in the roles that they work for our salvation. God the Son came as incarnate to be man. Jesus walked as a man. Jesus died on the cross. God the Father did not. And yet he did so in such a way that in everything that he did, he could say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father is in me and I am in him. So wasn't God sending off his son on a mission in which he sort of sat and watched? He participated in the sense that he was with Jesus, but they, did not, they were not the same person. They did not fill the same role. And we can also say that God is a unity so God is one, God is three, God is a diversity, God is a unity. Shared being and purpose in everything. Now, as we're trying to explain this, it can be really tempting to try to grasp for analogies. And I myself, I think when I was coming up, especially in youth group and things like that, there were times where I was given some analogies that were trying to help me understand the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they can be helpful up to an extent. For instance, sometimes you'll see people talk about the Trinity as water, and we think about states of matter, and we can think about water being gas and liquid and solid. That It's all water, but they appear in different ways. The problem with that is that it breaks down because God is not appearing to us in different ways. He's actually three different people. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about root and trunk and branches of a tree where there's different aspects of what the tree is and they're all the same tree, but I could, I could point to one and, and maybe in some ways that gets around the fact that they're not appearing to me in different ways. They all exist simultaneously. One can't exist without the other. But at the same time, it doesn't capture the relational aspect of what's going on. The same thing if you've heard people talk about it as an egg with shell and yolk and white. We look and we look for things in nature to help us understand, but the problem is that they all fall short. None of it can actually quite get to what it is that we're trying to say because God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is who He is. 
And all we can really do to understand that in more depth is to look at what has been revealed to us in Scripture and to participate in that life of the Trinity. Which that gets to the heart of the matter, which is why do we spend even time talking about this? I know that for some people, when we talk about things of theology, when we talk about things of mystery that are hard to understand, part of the inclination can just be, what does it really matter? I mean, we all have a basic sense that it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does it matter that I understand what that means and what I'm saying? And I think it does that we seek to understand it as best we can, even knowing that we will fall short in our understanding. First, because I think we cannot fully love what we don't know. And even though we can't fully know and understand the Trinity, as we seek to understand God as best as we can, we can come to love him more and more. And this was the command that was given to us, to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength and mind. This is the first and greatest commandment above everything else that is given to us. And we cannot do that if we don't seek to know him. And of course, this is true of human relationships as well. I can't, I don't, know everything about my wife. But to give up and throw up my hands in the air and say, well, then I'm not going to try to know you at all would not really lead to a very healthy marriage. <laughs> and where I have misunderstandings, and I still find some, where I have misunderstandings, I seek to clarify them and to know her more truly for who she actually is. And as I do so, I can love her more faithfully. I can love her better when I know her for who she really is. And this is part of why it is worth contemplating and gazing upon the mystery of God. It's because as we look and seek to understand his nature, we can know him better and we can grow in love. And above that, this is eternal life. This is what we are being saved into. In John 17, chapter 3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Of course, this isn't just talking about knowledge. This is not saying that smarter people somehow have a greater grasp on eternal life. In fact, oftentimes it's exactly the opposite. Knowledge here is not just a knowing about God, it is knowing God. But again, what we are seeking to do as we study things like the doctrines of the Trinity is to enter deeper and more fully into relationship with God. And we cannot do that if we don't know who He is, who He has revealed Himself to be. And as we know him more and more, not just in knowledge, but in our actual relationship with God, as we grow in that relationship with God, we understand some more of his purpose and the nature of his relationship towards us. As we looked at the book of Revelation and we looked at those passages of worship in the book of Revelation, over the last several weeks. One of the themes that came up more than once as we were looking at, at 
humanity coming and worshiping before the throne of God, and that this being part of our purpose, is that I quoted that passage from the Westminster Catechism. This is my third time now. That the purpose, chief, chief end of man, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And when you understand the nature of the Trinity, you understand a little bit more of what this actually means. Because taken on its own with the way that we use those, that language and the way we think of people, if I said that your purpose was to glorify me, that really, first of all, it's not. Let's make that really clear. But that would be setting myself up above you, really. It would be saying that somehow you're almost like a slave, someone who is supposed to serve me. And when we take a statement like that, that we are to glorify God, if we don't understand the nature of the relationship of the Trinity, we can see that as somehow making us less. But really, when we see that the purpose of the Father is to glorify the Son, and the Son is glorifying the Father, and the Spirit is glorifying the Son so that the Son may glorify the Father, and we see that this is the life of the Trinity, what we are finding is to say that your purpose is to glorify God is making you more. Because it is inviting you to share in that eternal life that they have had and shared forever. This is what it means to understand the Trinity and to enter into relationship, is that we are invited to participate in the life of the Trinity. This is why it's worth knowing as much as we can about it. Because salvation is not something that is merely forensic. It's not just a legal decision that says you were guilty of your sins and now because you are saved, you are not guilty of your sins. That is not the whole of salvation. At the heart of salvation is the idea that you are adopted as sons and daughters of God. Hebrews says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. We are invited into this life of the Trinity. We are given the Spirit dwelling in us. And when we look at this in chapter 17, uh, verse 22, we are so brought into the life of the Trinity that the glory that belongs to God is also given to us. Chapter 17, verse 22, the glory that you have given me, this is Jesus praying to the Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. One of the great saints of the early church, St. Athanasius, put it this way, that Jesus became man so that we may become God. Not in the sense that we are part of the Trinity exactly, but that we are brought into that life, really and truly participate in it, that our purpose can be to glorify God, just as God's purpose is to glorify God. And at the same time, as He is in us, we find that as we do the work of glorifying God, that He glorifies us as well. That we are lifted up to share in the same life of glory. This is salvation. 
This is eternal life. Eternal life doesn't just mean that you get to live forever, that you don't die, that it somehow is just continuing to exist. As Jesus talks about eternal life, he talks about seeking for the water that flows up from him. Eternal life is not just life that doesn't end. It's abundant life. It's sharing in the life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this changes our understanding of what it means to live a Christian life. When Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. This is not just some sort of manipulative statement to get us to act in a certain way. It is, at its heart, part of the invitation of what we are to be as Christians, that we are invited into the life of God. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And so we will conform our life to what it means to look like the life of God. Obedience isn't trying to to somehow be a killjoy. It is leading you into the ultimate joy of sharing in the eternal love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this means that when we go out with the message of the gospel, it doesn't stop at, you're a sinner and God can forgive you. That's true. But what's it offer is something that is so much greater. It's not just avoiding and hiding from death. It's entering into the life of God and sharing in it forever. And so this encourages us to live in a way that is consistent with understanding that I participate in the life of God. This is where Paul goes over and again when he talks about moral commands. What he reminds people over and over again is you participate in the life of God. Be careful what you do with your body. Remember that this is who you are. You are connected to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because the Spirit dwells in you. Live like it. And carry this message to the world that is so hurting and in need. Tell them that life, real life, is on offer by God. Participation in His life now and forever. We get to carry this forward not as just some sort of shameful message of you've messed up and there's a way out of it, but that God wishes to raise you up into his very life. This is why we seek to understand who God is. It's because he's inviting us into that life. And it is good. It is good beyond what we can imagine on our own, but it's real. And it's on offer to us. So church, remember what is being given to you. Remember your salvation. You share in the life of God if you have the Holy Spirit in you. Each day, live like it. When you make choices about what to do and what to not do, remember that you share in the life of God. When you decide whether to talk about salvation to somebody, to share it, to spread this message, remember what you are offering them. God has said, you too can share in this life. 
abundant life, life everlasting. Know who God is and remember who you are. And let it be seen in everything you do. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.